there will be one defining issue for the European Union over the next two years, and that's the energy crisis. Um, and the, the reality is, this is such a serious matter uh, that it will overshadow all other policy uh, initiatives. Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host today, Andrea Christensen. I'm excited to welcome our two guests to the show today, John Hume and Chris Megan. John and Chris join us from Hume Brophy, a leading global communication firm headquartered in Dublin that helps clients navigate complex regulatory and political environments. John is the founding director of Hume Brophy, and Chris is a managing director of transport and mobility practice. Both are experts in European business and regulatory issues, and we're excited to welcome them to our in-house podcast studio today. John Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you very much, Andrea. Awesome. So let's start really quick um, with a burning question. What's going on in the UK? Yeah, I mean, lots of people are asking that question at the moment because I'm not sure a lot of people know. Um, we've had uh, the Bank of England intervene in the uh, in the markets uh, twice in the last 10 days. Uh, guild prices are at an all-time low. Uh, we've had... We've had mini budgets uh, with very, very, you know, clear taxation uh, announcements, which then five days later get completely revoked. Um, this really isn't how grown-up governments are supposed to act. Um, so it is a mystery. Um, but I, I, I mean, you know, I'm, where what is going on? I, I think we've got a new government. They've got very, very particular ideas about how the UK should evolve and, and, and ideas about, about where the UK should sit on the world stage and, and, and fiscal policy and things like this. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating time. And I don't think, you know, um, I've ever seen, and I've been a, an avid watcher of UK politics uh, all my life. I've never seen a, a new government get it so wrong so quickly. You know? Are they going to recover? You know, the, uh, the, the the financial turmoil is still there. Um, I think the, the the energy crisis is is making matters worse. Um, uh, inflation is runaway levels. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's um, you know, will they recover? I'm not sure. I mean, because of the nature of parliamentary uh, democracy in the UK, uh, the Conservative Party have a majority. And I think it would be, it's kind of, it, you know, that, that won't disappear overnight. Um, so I don't think there's any uh, any immediate uh, possibility of an election. However, will the current administration remain in its current form? Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah, certainly. I think that, that they've definitely had a very stuttering start. It's not ideal, not what they would have wanted. Um, but They've got very significant hurdles that they've got to cross in the coming weeks as well, not least of which, of course, all eyes are on the budget, uh, which has been brought forward. Uh, so the coming weeks and, and even months will really determine uh, you know, how far this administration is going to go. All right. Well, let's turn to the other major UK issue, which is Brexit, uh, which finally uh, formally started in 2020. Um, so now that it's a reality, what has been the immediate impact in the UK uh, and also on the EU. Well, I, I suppose when the UK government says we've got Brexit done, they're, they're actually not telling the truth because they haven't got Brexit done. And um, there's large parts of Brexit that still need resolved. For example, you know, uh, the issue I suppose very close to my heart, which is the border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. And, you know, that is still work in progress. And it is a significant issue which, uh, which still needs to be resolved. Now, Thankfully, now that uh, the Prime Minister is in place and she no longer has to play to the gallery, the, 
the language coming from the UK government has improved significantly. Uh, and um, I would think there's real hope and expectation that the Northern Ireland issue will be resolved with a little bit of goodwill in, on both sides in the uh, in the coming weeks. Once that's done, I mean, what has been the major impact of, of Brexit? Well, it depends what world you live in. Um, uh, you know, I mean, we've seen... In the in the financial services world, we've seen significant outflows of of, of uh, companies from uh, from the the city of London. In the television world, we've seen the same thing because they they can no longer um, uh, service their clients in, in mainland Europe properly from the UK. But overall, I I think to 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 to, to people in the UK, um, it hasn't really it hasn't really made made that much of a difference um, politically. Obviously, obviously, it's a it's it, it's a big deal. Um, what we will see in the next year, I think, it was announced last week by uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, is what they described as the bonfire of the regulations uh, during the, you know, that they're going to rid the UK of unwanted EU legislation. And I think what they plan to do is to is to remove all uh, legislation which has its origins in EU law and then basically keep the ones that they like uh, amend the ones that they don't that they that, that they that need amending and remove the ones that they, uh, they that they want to remove how much can they do this I mean it remains to be seen I, I, I but I think you know they cannot completely change everything because the UK is whilst it may have left the European Union uh, it's still part of Europe the, you know the the single market is still their biggest uh, trading partner uh, and therefore they can't radically change change the regulatory system yeah and I, I would say as well I think it, there's still a sense as to come back to John's point there about how they have not left Europe they left the European Union there are very significant trade and cultural links that still exist between the United Kingdom and, and certain member states where uh, historically, there's this very strong cooperation and, and, and trade. Uh, and those relationships, they endure and they continue. And while the UK at the moment is continuing to seek to define itself as not the EU and to find its place on the international stage, uh, they're not doing that in partnership with those uh, those those countries close by that they have those strong trade links with. So there's still a lot of concern uh, from the European side in terms of where this is going to go and what impact that will have on those European economies. Yeah, and we were all at a breakfast earlier, and um, John and Chris have been very generous with their time this morning. Um, and you mentioned that collaboration between the UK and the EU is at an all-time low. Outside of Russia sanctions and aid to Ukraine, there's really not a lot of collaboration. So what what's – is that bad? What's the path forward? I think it is um, – it is bad, and it's something that we really need to see addressed quite urgently. Um, both the European Union and the UK would be very well served by working closer together and working in terms of um, common purpose um, and understanding the the fact that the economies of both and the livelihood uh, uh, of both are very much intertwined and very much interlinked and will remain so because they're just the, the geographical nature of, of, of the situation, that they are part of that, that region of the world and we trade together. So it, it's important that they do work together as much as possible. When we are going to see, if we are going to see significant divergence between the UK and the EU in terms of standards, in terms of certification, in terms of legislation, how it applies and so forth, these are going to create barriers and obstructions to business. 
and it's going to create uh, a more difficult environment for companies to to operate within both. And that is going to have an impact. Uh, there's no two ways about it, both for the EU and for the UK as well in terms of market access. Yeah, uh, I mean, looking into a crystal ball, you know, once the Irish question, which has been very contentious, is out of the way, and hopefully that will happen soon. Uh, I think what you will see by necessity is the UK government getting closer to Europe. Because for all the reasons that, that, that Chris has just outlined, you know, it is absolutely essential for UK business. Um, their main marketplace is, is the European Union. Um, and on a human level, you know, I mean, lots of British people live, li- live in Ireland, live in France, live in mm-hmm. Spain, and lots of European people live in Britain, you know, I mean, and, and that's, that's just life, you know, and I think that's, that, that, that will, that will, I hope sort of, you know, encourage the government to sort of, you know, to, that they, that, that they do need to have, uh, good neighborly relationships with the, the, the European governments and the EU. You mentioned earlier that the UK is going to go through this process of throwing out all of the EU rules and adopt some, amend some, readopt some, um, keep others out. How is this process going to impact their ability to trade with the EU? Well, yeah, I suppose one thing to think on that is that the first thing is that if you're, it's, it's this old adage of, you know, how do you unscramble an egg, you know? <laughs> so you've all this legislation mixed in. If they start removing elements of this and, and sunsetting that legislation, what are the knock-on effects? And, and what is the impact if we remove one, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have this house of cards and you pull away one card and the whole thing could collapse. So from an industry perspective, you know, industries need to really think about this and understand what is the implication for my business if this piece of legislation that originates from the EU is removed, you know, from the from the, the mix in the UK, and how will that impact on, on on their strategy and all their investments and so forth? That is a really really big question. The other side of this, though, is the question is, what is the point of this, and where is it going? You know, how does this benefit, you know, the UK and, and businesses that are operating in the UK, and you know, other than just to say we're removing the EU legislation, um, because the UK again proximity and, and, and market relations, they're besides the largest market in the world, you know, 500 million consumers in, in the European single market. And that has weight, that has influence. Um, we already know for a fact that any company that's operating in the UK, regardless uh, of the the uh, standards and certifications and laws that are applied by the UK, if that company wants to trade with the European Union, they are going to have to adhere to European standards. So we can remove, you know, the UK can remove all these elements but for any company that's looking, that's based in the UK, looking to deal with the uh, with the EU, they're still going to be subject to them. So where is the benefit from this? And the UK itself is a small market in relative terms, with only sixty million people compared to the European, you know, compared to the European Union with over five hundred million consumers. So therefore, removing regulations are fine for a domestic business, but for those that that would, you know, that trade internationally, and you know, a lot of you know, companies see the UK and it is very much their, their sort of, you know, from, from where they, they, they trade with the EU. Um, removing all these, the, 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 these regulations, uh, I don't really know what, you know, ultimately what purpose it would serve. I mean, what Jacob Rees-Mogg said is he wants the UK to become the best regulated country in the world, which is very laudable, of course, and sort of what a responsible minister should say, I would, I would imagine. But the reality is, the UK lives in a much wider, interdependent, international, globalized world where, you know, uh, uh, and their main 
their main uh, market is is Europe. I mean, the, the UK does more trade with Ireland, a market of 4 million people, than it does with India, for example. That's significant. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start talking about the energy crisis. Every two weeks, Penta measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations toward the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by Penta, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us at pentagroup.co. Welcome back to What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. This is your host, Andrea Christensen. I'm here with uh, John Hume and Chris Megan from global communications firm Hume Brophy. And we've been talking about UK, EU policy, and we're about to start talking about kind of what's on top of mind for everyone in Europe right now, which is winter is coming. Uh, there is a energy crisis at foot. And so my, my question to you both is, you know, what? are some of the long-term political and policy implications of what's coming this winter? Well, I, I think the current crisis has shown that uh, the EU are, are certainly a, a number of member states or most members, they, they, they got their energy policy wrong. Uh, they neglected energy security. Uh, and, um, and now that is going to create a big problem. And I think how the European Union and how key countries react to this uh, will, I think, be the defining feature of the next couple of years in Europe. Um, the reality is that, uh, you know, this is a very serious problem. Um, there is not enough energy and uh, in Europe and, and the costs are, are skyrocketing. Uh, the cost of heating a home in, in, in certain countries has doubled, if not tripled. Um, you know, it's it, it, things like this have serious political impacts. Uh, and therefore, from what we can see in, in Europe at the moment, the focus uh, is very much about getting through this winter and next winter. And it's that immediate challenge of how do we keep, you know, major uh, industrial installations working? How do we keep factories working? How do we keep people being able to heat their homes? These are real issues now uh, that need to be addressed immediately. And there are no, certainly, there are no easy solutions here. Um, and I think this problem has been further exaggerated by the decision taken by OPEC, OPEC last, last Friday to, to further cut um, oil production. Um, so I think whilst the European Union has been very much focused on a sustainable future and on uh, renewable energy, and there is now very much a sort of how do we deal with the here and now. Well, and one of our guests at the breakfast this morning noted that Europe's buying more coal than they've bought in 30 years. So how does the realities of people needing to heat their homes uh, impact some of these broader sustainability objectives that many governments in the EU uh, uh, writ large has adopted. Yeah, well, you know, as an Irish person, we love talking about the weather, right? Um, but this year, that, that you know, as we head into winter, that's extremely important. Um, if the weather is particularly cold or bad this year, it is going to put additional pressure uh, on, on uh, member states and all the governments in terms of their requirements around energy and, and heating in particular. Uh, but in terms of what we have seen, of course, is the 
that the energy security question has been catapulted to the very, very top of the political uh, priorities list in, in Europe, um, and that's across the board. Um, while we don't know where the final outcome will be and what this will look like at the end of the day, what we can say with, with great certainty is that the energy mix that existed in February 2022 uh, and how Europe worked, um, that is no longer going to work, and we will not be going back to that model. And so now there is a a move, a shift towards a new um, approach towards uh, energy within the EU. Um, the political priority, of course, is about keeping the lights on. And so if that means, for example, that sustainability goals may have to take a little bit of a back step in the immediate term uh, to address the crisis, well, then that might be the cost that has to be paid in, in order to get us across there. But it also creates significant opportunities as well, because we are going to have to, uh, you know, redesign our approach to energy uh, in Europe. And we need to, you know, uh, draw upon innovation. We need to draw upon new technologies. We need to look at, you know, a new approach to this, a new way of working together in terms of energy. And that does create very significant opportunities for industries. And what, what might that look like? And is there any government or industry leading the way right now? Well, there there is, but obviously the key focus here, because you know it's it's much like what we've seen before, is that you know we acknowledge that there is an importance in bringing diversifying our energy mix, but um, the key here as well is that in longer term thinking we need to be focusing more so on renewables. Um, so we are going to see, I think, you know, greater investment in that space. I think a greater priority in terms of uh, the planning applications and making sure they go through. So maybe a degree of of less. Um, Governments paying less heed to concerns around sort of you know not in my backyard sort of approach that mm-hmm. you know why is that windmill you know looking down my window the windmill is looking is straight outside your window now because of the necessity of what we're doing you know so I think there's probably going to be a bit of a shift in that regard but yeah there is a there is a, a very clear priority here and of course you know if we are going to do this in line with the sustainability goals then that's where we have to to head towards. Yeah, well, uh, need is the mother of necessity, or necessity is the, the um, mother, of mother invention. invention. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so, talking about sustainability, um, you both have done a lot of work in the transportation sector. I'd be curious um, what you see as the future of transportation, whether it be aviation, automotive. Uh, how how the sustainability goals and the ESG goals are working in in that industry? Yeah, it, it, it's it's really. It's a fascinating discussion to be in at the moment. And I have to say, you know, and I've worked in, in, in transport policy for you know, over 12 years now, and it is right now we're at the cusp of something really quite amazing. You know, it's um, it's a very exciting and dynamic time. Um, transport is, is rightly identified as a, 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 as a, a cause of significant emissions from a sustainability perspective. But you can flip that coin as well. And you can say, well, transport is also part of the solution when we think about sustainability and we think about societies and how they function and to making sure that we can have this work. We can't get to a sustainable society without sustainable transport existing within that function somewhere. And so that is creating, again, huge opportunity for an awful lot of industries to be part of that process and that priority where we have to decarbonize and and come to a sustainable transport model across the various modes. And there's new technologies being introduced and explored, and, and that in itself is opening up all sorts of very interesting developments. Um, we've seen, of course, the big discussion both in the US and in the and in the, the European Union over the last couple of years has been around sustainable aviation fuels. And there's been very significant process been, or, or progress been made there uh, by the by both regions. Uh, but now we're looking at what comes next. 
You know, we're looking at electric, we're looking at hydrogen. And hydrogen is a really fascinating one in terms of how that's going to fit within the mix and, and what opportunities that presents as well. And Europe is really leaning into that very, very strongly. They've got a very clear plan about what they want to achieve. They see how it can work in. They've identified that hard to decarbonize industries such as maritime and aviation, these are going to be sectors that they're going to lean towards in terms of hydrogen use. Okay. So let's turn to EU leadership more broadly. Um, we've seen the EU kind of take the lead on a lot of major regulations, including GDPR. Um, they're leading on ESG efforts. Uh, how, how should we think about EU leadership here? And more specifically, how should multinational companies think about the regulations and the policies that are coming out of the EU as they sort of develop how they're engaging across the world? If you take the ESG debate in in, in, in the EU, it, it is quite interesting um, how the European Commission have changed how they do things. Um, what you have seen is the European Commission, um, while still the regulator and the legislator, it has also become an, become an activist. Um, and what you've seen is that the, the European Commission is basically pointing the finger at industries that aren't doing what they should be doing uh, and asking why. And then turning to their investors, their financiers, uh, and indeed their customers and saying, why are you still doing business with these people? And this, you know, the market reacts a lot faster than the regulator. And, you know, the results that they've been getting have been a lot more, a lot quicker and a lot more effective than the, the regulatory change, which, which, which always takes a, a much, much longer. So, so I think, I mean, certainly on, 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 on ESG, I think, I think you, you will see uh, in the future much more activism from the EU. Uh, and I think the, 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 the debate has, uh, will move a lot quicker and will be a lot more decisive than regulatory change. And I think that is something that, you know, all corporations and businesses, uh, you know, that do business and that, 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 that operate in the EU need to be very mindful of. And I, I think one of the things like, I, I find the ESG debate in Europe is, is really fascinating um, because it is a, it's a new way for them to, uh, to bring forward policy, but to cultivate behavioral change in organizations. Um, which is, to me, is quite fascinating. And there's a clear distinction between the likes of GDPR, which is setting very hard and fast rules. It's hard legislation. It says if you are going to deal with the personal data of European residents, these are the rules you will follow, and we will hold you to those, you know. But with the ESG side, it, it's a little bit different. It's more sort of saying, you know, if you are to, you know, get access to the single market and to be able to, you know, so forth and all the rest, then here are some behaviors which we encourage and if you do this, then you're going to be identified as an eco-label, uh, provided the eco-label for your company, and that's going to give you opportunities for funding and so forth and all the rest. So it's much more, uh, it's a softer sort of approach, but nonetheless, it's it's very uh, impactful. And really what, what fascinates me about that whole process is rather than going down the hard approach of GDPR, it's about harnessing social power and social pressure uh, onto companies and onto industries. And that is a really a fascinating sort of development that they've gone in, in, in that direction, you know. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. And um, what, you know, that balance between hard and soft, um, what other areas do you think might fall into those kind of yeah, categories? That's, you know, this is, again, when we look back on this and we see that it, it is, this is not in isolation. This is a trend we can look at through various, uh, you know, legislative developments in the EU over the last number of years. And it, it all stems from the fact that they have 
perhaps are woken up to the power of the single market and the influence that the single market can drive forward. They can set standards internationally, you know, whether that's the the type of charger you're going to have on your phone in the future, or whether it's about how you deal with data protection and privacy or cybersecurity requirements, you know. And again, cybersecurity is another very good one as well that is going to apply. So even if you're based outside of the EU, but providing a service in and it's a particular networked infrastructure service, then you are going to be subject to the cybersecurity requirements, you know. So there's there's how they're moving forward is it they clearly have come to an understanding of the influence that they can play internationally when it comes to driving forward legislation and uh, as we say, cultivating behaviors with companies. And that's really going to be amplified even more so now because we've only touched on the E part of ESG on the environmental aspect. And that we can talk about things in terms of the levels of emissions from, from you know businesses and so forth, about their energy mix and so on, their investments. But when we get into the social and the governance aspect of this discussion um, about you know rules around labor laws and so forth, about working times and all the rest, you know, what impact will those have in terms of businesses providing access in? And it's a it's a huge departure from many, many years of a, a very open approach to to allowing access to the market that Europe has taken. And now it's much more in control and, and determining the rules by which uh, companies are going to access the single market. Yeah. And, and talking a little bit about what's next, John, you mentioned earlier that uh, when it comes to influencing EU policy, the early bird gets the worm. Um, so what are the emerging issues that aren't in the headlines today that global companies should be thinking about starting to engage the EU on today? As I see it, there will be one defining issue for the European Union over the next two years, and that's the energy crisis. Um, and the, the reality is this is such a serious matter. Uh, that it will overshadow all other policy uh, initiatives. Um, uh, and, you know, I think when you look at their, their attitude towards energy, it's there is the short term, which is the next two winters, and then there is the long term. And I think what you're going to see is a massive, massive, massive investment in renewable energy, the likes of which has never been seen before by the European Union, because they have to. And as you said, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I, that's where I think, you know, um, uh, the real focus will be. Outside of that, I think, you know, how Europe does business is changing. Uh, the UK leaving has had an impact in Europe as well. And that sort of, you know, they, the, the UK was always in, in, in many ways the problem child, uh, who would have been against further integration. I think, by necessity now, uh, given the crises that we that, 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 that we are facing, integration will become uh, an issue of the future. Uh, that said, there are you know there are populist governments appearing across the, the the European Union, and the political fallout of the energy crisis could be quite serious. In that you know if people can't you know uh, uh, heat their homes, they're not happy. If people can't go to work, they're not happy. And that could have all sorts of uh, repercussions down the line. So I think we're what we're what we're uh, looking you know at the next couple of years, it will be a bumpy a bumpy ride for Europe. Uh, but again, I mean, I think there's a you know Europe survives crises. The European Union is there. Uh, in order to sort of deal with these things. And I think the institutions, uh, um, you know, will ensure that sort of, you know, uh, um, that, 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 th- that things will go on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I would say, though, I think in terms of a couple of areas that I would in a, and I agree entirely in terms of the energy crisis, that's what's going to be the focus in, in the immediate to short term. Uh, but the beyond that, again, we can't 
get away from the overarching priorities around sustainability. And sustainability is going to remain the big topic. And in many ways, the, the solutions that we look for in terms of the energy crisis are going to be you know, also trying to, to, to tick the box in terms of moving forward in terms of our sustainability goals. Um, I think there's a, the other thing I suppose to, to, to be conscious of is that Europe is not afraid of innovation and is really leading in very, very heavily in that regard. Um, and they are leading in a couple of areas on this, do you know what I mean? In terms of um, certain new technologies coming forward, Europe are at the absolute forefront in terms of regulation for them. Uh, but an, an area which is well identified as presenting a huge opportunity, but they are also very wary of it as well, and they're approaching it with, with a caution. And they're establishing how to do things, and they use particular language, and this is in the space of artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence, of course, opens up many, many, many opportunities for uh, all sorts of industries across the board. Really, it's quite boundless. But Europe are approaching and saying, the Artificial Intelligence Act, which is going through the process at the moment, is going to be adopted and so forth. And um, it is very clear, they're saying, we will facilitate, we will allow the development of an artificial intelligence um, you know, activity and, and around businesses in Europe, but it'll be subject to European values. And those European values, you know, that was something which we started to see that language more and more in some of the policy documents. And you can start to put a, a you know, a pin in it and identify what it is. And it's very clear that there are certain aspects in there. We go back to GDPR, for example, in terms of the use of data and, and, and privacy and so forth. These are European values, you know. And so those European values are being baked into legislation. So it's a very clear, um, on the one hand, they're quite happy to, to legislate for artificial intelligence and to allow companies to go down that route. But again, they are going to control how that works. Well, you have given us a lot to think about. Thank you, John and Chris. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. And thank you for listening to this edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. Tune in next week and visit us at pentagroup.co to learn more.